This is Wayne McCullough with Simple Talk Radio, reporting in from Dallas, Texas. Good to be back with you, general listeners. It's been quite a while, and I noticed that our um, listenership is growing each week, so we're very excited about that. I do want to time capsule this. We're still in what I would call the coronavirus era. Um, it's just worth noting because so when somebody listens to us down the road, when they hear us talking about these strange times we live in, that it's having a massive influence on our culture um, from a socioeconomic standpoint, from an economic standpoint, from a health standpoint, um, I'd even say from an intelligence community standpoint, all the way through, through to the military. So in a political standpoint as well, um, which all those things will tie in most likely today. But once again, I'm at KPEC studio. Kevin Evelyn is sitting over here across from me. He is, uh, this could not happen without him, the best independent producer in Dallas. And make um, a note that we are socially distanced. Wayne, yes, you're exactly <laughs> six feet and one inch apart. My guest is Tracy Walder, who is about eight feet apart. Um, we're excited to have Tracy on. I'm going to give a little background here. Before I get into the unexpected spy, is what we'll call her, um, the really the first person in intelligence operations to go from the CIA to the FBI. Um, and I've never had a counterintelligence or an intelligence officer on my show, so I'm really excited about that. You're the coolest person I've had on there. <laughs> no offense to my other guests. Um, I want to give our genesis story, and this is the way I generally operate my life, and I encourage you guys to do the same thing. I walked into my office, and there was the Park City's people sitting on our little coffee table. And I literally picked it up and threw it on my desk. Four days later, I looked at the cover, and there was this um, picture of a young lady on the cover. And I said, and it said something like the, the unexpected spy and the spy among you or something. So I literally read it, took it over to Skyler's desk, and said, Skyler, somehow find this person's phone number or email. And I think we went through your website, then went to the info, and then found you. Um, and I encourage you people out there to do that. Don't just, if you find something interesting, reach out. And, and that ended up with Tracy being on a panel that we put on through my work. And, and our panels focus on, you know, this one in particular is kind of war, money, and politics. And um, everyone, the world has become so global that Tracy gave a, a great, great speech that night. So, Let's back up a little bit, and I'm going to let Tracy tell her story more than me, but Tracy Walder um, currently has a book out called The Unexpected Spy, which really tells her story and the path to get there. Grew up in California, and being in California, Alter led her to USC, which I love some of, I'm looking at her site right now, basically from Delta Gamma Shorty Sister to the CIA, and there aren't many of those, but which ended up uh, the CIA counterterrorism unit. Really, um, you know, thwarting terrorist attacks and hiding in trunks of cars on the way to debrief terrorists. And yes, your husband put this site together. You may not even realize all that's on here. <laughs> it's very, very well done, though. I encourage you guys, tracywalder.com. And we're going to get more into everywhere to reach her at the end. But really, it is significant. I am a, I am a um, patriot heart. Uh, my grandfather was a, a World War II plane mechanic, which at the time also meant that he would fly some of those that he was working on to make sure they worked. So, um, and we've had a long history in uh, my, my family, not me personally, but of service. So I applaud you because I think oftentimes in the special ops world, they're kind of put over here when you really are serving your country at the highest level, the FBI, the CIA, et cetera, you know? So it's important to me and thank you for your service. 
So um, Tracy was involved in the Central Intelligence Agency Counterterrorism Center Weapons of Mass Destruction Group. So I mean, tr- been all over the world, Afghanistan, Jordan, Algeria, Morocco, Denmark, Sweden, Italy, and the list goes on. Um, I really went from here to Austin to D.C. and then back here. So that's those are my travels. <laughs> but that's why you're on the other side of this and not me. So we're going to get to you shortly. Um, the the awards are, are endless. Uh, four exceptional performance awards for the CIA, two special activity awards, Emeritus Unit Citation Award, a DCI Counterterrorism Central Medal, and two Operating Enduring Freedom Targeting Awards. So after the CIA, you became a special agent with the FBI. Los Angeles Field Operating Union. So that's a lot of talking on my part. Tracy, once again, it's been a joy to get to know you in my life, Um, even to see the arc of your life this brief period from, I mean, you were working on the book, it was getting close, option for TV. So we got a lot to talk about. So welcome. Thank you. And So what I'd really like to do is I gave a lot of background, but as you're you know, the Genesis story would be intriguing. And I said this to a coach I had on the other day. You didn't just wake up and become a CIA operative, right? There has to be a unique path where financial services or real estate or those are traditional. So at some point, something led you that way. So, well, thank you for having me on. Absolutely. I'm very excited to be here. Um, so I guess to go back to my my Genesis story, you're right. I didn't just one day wake up and decide yeah. this was where I was going. Um, so like you, um, I actually came from a family of of patriots as well. Um, I've done some genealogy searching, and I came to find out that my great great um, grandfather and grandmother um, served in the Crimean War. Um, my great grandparents oh. served in World War One. My grandparents served in World War II, and my dad um, is a Vietnam veteran. So in doing that genealogical search, I realized the bloodlines went back Mm -hmm. really far. So um, I think subconsciously, I don't think my dad ever, you know, pounded that into my head, but there's always been this idea of of serving your country. It just was Mm -hmm. kind of always there because I was always exposed to it through my dad, through my grandpa, through my great-grandpa. And so it's just always been in front of my my face, I guess, growing up. Um, I really liked history, though. Um, I loved history. I loved my history teacher. Um, I really just liked everything about it. And so I decided when um, I was going to enter college that I was going to be a history major and I would be a high school history teacher. I had a teacher who really changed my life. I was bullied really badly kind of growing mm. up. Um, and his room just kind of created this like haven, I guess, for me. I could talk about history, read about history, and I just felt kind of safe in there. Mm-hmm. And so it really impacted me, and I knew I wanted to impact other students. Um, and so I thought, oh, perfect, I'll be a high school history teacher. And so, you know, I went to USC. That was my angle. But I started to realize that maybe there were other applications of my history degree. There might mm-hmm. be other things. I, I grew kind of restless. I don't know any other way to explain that. Um, and I had a really great professor. I was struggling in economics. Um, not doing well. And I had to go for tutoring. And he ended up being the dean of the school. And he's like, let's brainstorm some ways that you can apply your degree. He said, museums, um, politics, uh, law. And so I interned at a museum. I interned for a senator. I interned at a law firm. I really started trying to figure out ways to apply my degree. But none of them, it's not that I didn't like them. I don't know that I found this like lifelong passion in those applications. 
But one day, um, I was sitting in my sorority house uh, watching, C- I think it was CNN, yes, and um, these two Peters, Peter Arnett and Peter Bergen, were interviewing this this guy, and his name was Osama bin Laden. Mm. Um, so we have to remember, this is, this is 1997, so this is before... You know, September 11th. Right. This was sort of on the heels of you know Ruby Ridge, Waco, Oklahoma City. Mm. Those are you know sort of where we had emerged from, I guess, um, at that point. Uh, foreign Middle Eastern terrorism wasn't like really a thing. Right. Um, but in that interview, something piqued my interest, and that was when Bin Laden issued his his fatwa or his declaration of war against the U.S. But he also issued a fatwa against Jews. And for me, I grew up. The time that I grew up, um, the Israel-Palestine issue was was, was large. Um, mm. And I grew up, um, I'm Jewish, and I would go to temple and have to go through metal detectors. and That was just my norm growing up. Mm-hmm. And so I think for me, rather than getting upset, I wanted to find out more about this Middle East issue. Where did mm-hmm. it come from? Where did bin Laden's animosity come from? That's sort of something my parents have always instilled in me, which, which I love, is you know, instead of shutting off, you know, the other side, mm-hmm. find out more. Um, and so I started to take some more Middle Eastern history classes just to find out more. And I was like, how do I apply terrorism? Like, what, what do I do to, to do that? Um, and so this is the 90s. So this is before, I don't even think we had a new James Bond yet at this mm-hmm. point. So this is before Criminal Mind, you know, all these shows so I had no preconceived notions really of what the CIA did. To me, I thought they really just focused on Russia, you know, because it, the wall had come down, yeah. you know, the Soviet Union fell. You're that, younger than me, but that's what we grew up with. Yeah, th- the, that's that what conflict. I grew up yeah. with. Um, and so that's what I thought they did. Um, so one day, um, I, I, USC has kind of a main thoroughfare where every all their business recruiters or whatever recruiters sort of hang out there. Um, and I rode my bike <laughs> with my roommate. Um, she was applying for a job at a company that no longer exists. And she said, you know, bring your resume. You never know. Well, I mean, who knows? And I said, okay. So I brought my resume and it, you know, there was a CIA table. So I walked up. They didn't come to me. I walked up to them <laughs> and I said, hey, what, what are you about? What do you do? And, you know, um, he said that, we're looking for people who are critical thinkers. And I said, well, I'm just a history major. I don't, mm-hmm. I don't think I'm of interest to you. And he's like, no, 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 that would be great. Um, a history major can look at problems differently and give me your resume. You never know. And so I gave him my resume and they called. <laughs> and that what year, what year was that? Your so senior year? That would have actually been um, in March of my junior year. So it would have been like 99, early of 99. Okay. So September 11th hadn't happened yet. Um, then obviously I have to go through the background process. That yeah. that took some time. And then I was fully cleared November, December of my senior year. So they gave me a conditional offer of employment. It was contingent upon my graduation. And then in May of 2000, when I graduated, is when I moved to Virginia and started at the CIA. Okay. So l- let me ask that. And this, I'm already looking at the clock because I, I uh, love questions. And this going. could go on forever. And so we'll, I'll, I'll keep you moving forward. <laughs> At that, because I think what people are intrigued with, um, at that time, you couldn't necessarily tell people I'm going to the CIA, right? Or, or- so yeah, I could. Um, so that's a fun, I guess, misconception about right. the agency is actually most employees are overt employees, right? Um, and so for me, yes, I could. Um, I was an overt employee. Where I ran into problems, and if if folks pick up my book, they'll see there are sections that are redacted. And, yeah. 
Um, that's as a result of five full rewrites of my book to get it to that point. Right. My issue actually was that when I was here in the U.S., I was obviously, I could tell people, I don't know that I flaunted it, but I, I could tell people I worked there. However, when I went overseas, I went overseas in a full alias. And so um, that was where the issue became. So were you overt the whole time? Mm-hmm. Okay, mm-hmm. interesting. Uh, I'll tell a story about a CIA guy, a guy I met one time, but we fit, he kept saying it was with the State Department, and then we just finally figured out... <laughs> He was interviewing for jobs. He was trying to leave, and basically, he said once he would started doing that, he could tell people where he really worked. I mean, it was a complicated way. So it depends. Like I have a I have a friend recently who just as of three weeks ago, mm-hmm. um, finally got her cover lifted. But her cover had nothing to do with the fact that she was, you know, some shady spy because right. um, she wasn't. <laughs> she was a reports officer, and yeah. her cover had everything to do with her husband. So and just. Situation he had with his family, right. so it's weird. Cover is a strange thing. Okay, so you go to the job fair, go to the CIA, mm-hmm. and at that time, so what? I'm just curious. There's internships at the bank. You start as an analyst. Where do you when you walk into the CIA's doors? Where do you start? So CIA is a little bit different. Yeah, um, and I think that's where sometimes people misunderstand like the roles of analysts there. Yeah. Um, at, at the time, it's been restructured several times mm-hmm. since I've left, but there are a couple of different direct, like directorates is what they called them. So the DA, which is administration. So that's a, like HR, payroll, finance. Those folks like live there. Mm-hmm. Um, there's DSNT, which is science and technology. So hackers, you know, like that kind of engineers. I was not qualified to be in the DSNT as a history major. Um, and then there's the uh, DI, which is intelligence. So that's your analysts. Um Again, I was actually unqualified to be an analyst. Most of them have PhDs in right, things yeah. like South Korean politics or whatever. So the DO, strangely, is more of a liberal arts kind of place yeah. um, because they kind of want that 360 view of, of everything. People who are personable, character, like those kinds of things are more what they're focusing on mm-hmm. because you're dealing with the collection of human intelligence. Um, so it has more to do... A little more to do, I guess, with your personality um, than anything else. So I went straight into there. That's where I was placed. I didn't ask to be placed there. Normally, you don't. They just sort of... And what was that called? Um, I was in the Directorate of Operations. Okay, so... Don't know what it's called right now. There's no way that you just start... I mean, everyone has to have a mentor. Like, what does that look like inside the agency? If you can comment, meaning... You had to learn your way around, right? So you do something called EOD, which is entering on duty. um, And you have basically, it's like 10 days of, I mean, very boring orientation. I don't know any other way to put it. Getting you an email, you know, really like basic basic stuff. Um, And so for me, so the CIA works differently than the FBI. Mm -hmm. With the FBI, you go straight to Quantico, right? Mm -hmm. You start your training right away. The CIA does not work like that. Um, At least when I was there, it didn't. I still think it's that way today. Um, you start in an office that they put you in. So basically where they need a new body. <laughs> and my office happened to be the counterterrorism center. Then you wait for your class to start at the farm. And so that can be a year. That can mm-hmm. be four months. That can be – it's just when the classes are, like, cycling. So what, for me there, I started in the counterterrorism center. And what I – my first – I guess this assignment um, was looking at um, terrorist training camps. 
um, you know, what's going on there. People are coming and going. Where can we get more information about where these people are going? Um, information from phones, you know, anything we can glean from activity. Because a lot of times if we see heightened activity, does that mean an attack? Like, what does that mean? Um, and so for me, I, I'm a really hard worker. I've always been a hard worker. And I guess I caught the attention of my manager. Mm-hmm. Um, and just before September 11th, um, three of us in that office uh, were selected to start on a, it's still classified program. I'm shocked that they let me keep it in the book. Um, uh, they they sort of briefed us into a program. And I thought, well, I'm waiting to go to the farm. This sounds like fun. Why not? <laughs> and so um, I started in that program on September 10th um, mm. of 2001. Um, and the program became pretty much the most important thing at the CIA during September 11th. So I worked that for five months until January um, of 02. So uh, this is interesting because everybody remembers where they were when the towers went down. I mean, I literally remember distinctly. I remember what I had on. And I remember um, an elder gentleman at, at where I was at this club having breakfast, and it's, he was so dead on. It became evident to anybody that paid attention that clearly it wasn't an accident. I mean, mm-hmm. right. The first plane, even then, you're like, 747s don't really get that far off course, right? Um, and he said, everything we know will never be the same. I mean, it, just think about it. Just going to the airport, just I- anything, right? The mm-hmm. Patriot Act alone, right? So, what, but what I am curious, inside the walls of the CIA... One, I'm sure there was sadness, right? And you couldn't get around that. Well, was it, you know, DEFCON 4 and bells going off? Or was it a very calm? Like, what did that, or you may not have even been inside the walls of the CIA. No, I was. Do you remember what, what is that environment? And then does it immediately go into, okay, here's process? Mm-hmm. So I think, so the sadness came later. Uh-huh. Um, just because, you know, if you're in war or whatever, you don't have time to sort of work through all of those yeah, processes. Yeah, feelings. Um, so I think I did not realize, I think, that there was a terror. So we don't have access to open internet and TV and things like that. So, uh, I think- yeah, so see, I, you can't bring your phone in there, you know, those kinds of things. So I actually did not know. So you weren't seeing the footage. Um, I, in- I turned on, so I had a friend who worked in what we call an outbuilding. Um, mm-hmm. She was working something in an open building, meaning she had internet. Mm-hmm. She called into my secure line. I was like, you need to find a TV like right now. And so all of us were kind of huddled around this huge TV that we had in our office. And we turned it on right in time to see the second plane hit. Mm-hmm. And so I think um, I did watch the second plane hit. But um, we have to remember that there was um, kind of an issue where they thought the CIA was in danger. And so the CIA was actually evacuated. Um, well, yeah, because the Pentagon obviously was exposed. Right. right. So. so the CIA was evacuated, but we were not because we worked at the counterterrorism center. Yeah. Um, so it wasn't chaos. I What I remember the most is lots of closed doors. Um, it's not very sexy, I guess. If people have seen Zero Dark Thirty, we really work in like cubicle bays. There's not, yeah. you know, it's not that fancy. But our managers all have, you know, like these small offices. And what I do remember is a lot of us just sort of standing there and our manager's office doors like closing um, right. for them to have discussions. Um, and then we all just stayed where we were and they came out and were like, okay, this is what we're going to do. And just went into planning mode. Um, but there wasn't chaos. There wasn't sadness. It was just, okay. What do you need us to do? And we'll do it. And we did it. 
uh, to your delayed um, sadness or grief, I think it was t- three days later, I'm driving home from the office. We, you know, we went back to the office, and uh, I don't know. They, they were talking about it on the radio, and they just start talking about the number. And I, I can't remember. I'm close, 3,000 or whatever the number was of Americans that perished in the, in the attacks. And I just started bawling. But it was three days after the event. But I don't know. It's just like all of a sudden just the heaviness of that hit me. That um, for me didn't – so I struggle with PTSD and a, mm-hmm. a lot of other things. I think everyone at the Counterterrorism Center feels responsible for mm-hmm. the people that died. So it's really hard for me to even talk about September 11th mm-hmm. most of the time because we'll always feel like a sense of responsibility. I don't know that it's ever like hit me and that I've had a good cry about it. I mean, part of the problem is, you know, a lot of the stuff I did, um, it's not really good to have a lot of emotions um, mm-hmm. at the time. So you just get so used to stifling that you just kind of um, keep doing that, which is not healthy. I understand that, but um. we'll talk about mental illness. I didn't. <laughs> that that's a, a huge piece of my life is, in my brothers as well is you know exposing mental illness mm-hmm. in a good way, right? Yeah. Meaning, Mike has his and he was on my podcast. I sent you that link. He he's you know just come out publicly with his with his depression, and he's a guy that knows everybody. You know. All state football, like he checked all the boxes. So when he came out to this group of men and spoke, like you could heard a pin drop because mm-hmm. a lot of these men are like, well, "Wait a second, when it's I hard, felt that it's hard." The agency um, in my book, I'm very positive about the agent. I don't have right. one bad thing to say, but one thing I will say um, is that at least when I was there, and perhaps it's gotten better, but it, just in people I've talked to, it sounds like it hasn't. Um, so you meet with a psychologist to be cleared to go and talk to terrorists, but you don't meet with a psychologist when you come back to unpack that. Right. And so go see your kids. And so there's only one, um, there was only one psychologist for the entirety of the CIA when I was there. And so I can't talk to any psychologist because they're not cleared. Mm. <laughs> um, and so it does become a problem. Um, and, you know, then if you talk about the fact that you take antidepressants or, you know, whatever, see a psychologist, see a therapist, um, that becomes a problem then in your background checks. And mm. so, there's a lot of stifling, I think, that goes on. Yeah. Yeah. And to the stifling, it too. But part of that is part of the job, right? So, yes, I, I don't know if you've met Ryan Birdman Parrot, very, very close friend. Mm-hmm. He's been on the show. He was a SEAL Team Six sniper. It's like, look, I mean, to do what I did, I just have to turn things off. And right? I did too. I mean, 100%. He's like, you know, I, I have to realize I'm trying to keep people from killing my people. And, and, but, like he said, he's he's handles it really well because he's but he's like everyone pays the piper at some point. I think he's right. And I mean, you, you're going to have to at some point you have to process it. Oh yeah, you need to meet Birdman. He's he's complete trip. So okay, so let's slow down. So you go to the CIA. Um, you're currently married with children. Yes. Um, where did you meet your husband? Because <laughs> it, I mean, he I don't think he was in the CIA because he's <laughs> part of my child's well i won't get into that we have a connection through um the neighborhood but uh so yeah where did you guys meet yeah so we met two I'm sorry two months after i left the fbi actually so he has never known me in my cia okay, fbi okay. capacity which is fascinating but yeah. yes he's never known me that way okay so but you could tell him where, what you'd been doing clearly or yeah. to an extent to an extent yeah okay so i, I was under pressure you guys may have met at school no uh, is it, this is silly, yeah, it seems like it might be hard to date while you're either in the CIA so or FBI. that's a I great mean, question, um, 
and we talk about this a lot. I'm still really good friends with people there. We talk yeah. like every day. And um, so the CIA tends to be a place where you just like date within your pool, which I know is probably not the most PC thing, but right. it's not necessarily discouraged there because it can make things easier. Right. Right. Yeah. Um, and so really bulk of people I dated when I was there were in the agency. Um, it's convenient. It's they understand, you know, the lifestyle that you have. But on the flip side, the divorce rate there is incredibly high uh, because of you're separated for long periods of time or if you have an unaccompanied tour, which means your family can't come with you, that becomes an issue. And so, um, I mean, there's good and bad to, I guess, both, mm-hmm. both sides. So I want to pivot back a little bit. Your dad was a Vietnam vet, mm-hmm. um, which um, that's a period and era that I'm completely intrigued with. That started when I was junior in high school. I had uh, the Honorable Alan Clark on. If you haven't met Alan, that's somebody else you need to meet. He lost both his legs in Vietnam, one of the most decorated Vietnam warriors to come out. And I worked for Sam Johnson, Congressman yeah. Sam Johnson. Mm-hmm. You may have known that. Uh, but I, I think I probably – I put them all on the floor of my back house, took a picture the other day. I think I've read 37 books on the subject. So wow. it's just something that intrigues me. But your father, was not was he a career um, – military personnel or just no, my, served for a period? So my grandfather was. My dad was not. But my um, uncle is a, a guy named Herbie Chandler. He's mm-hmm. pretty famous. He wrote a lot of books. Um, and he um, taught at West Point. Um, as well. So he was a career um, person. He advised McNamara, I think, during okay. the war. But so your dad served in Vietnam and then mm-hmm. went on to civilian life of yes. some sort. He went okay. to USC and became a psychologist. Okay. <laughs> and or was he teaching still? He just retired last year. Okay. Yeah. Um, yeah, the Vietnam is an interesting one if you study... I mean, the intelligence was there early, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, it's just... An, some things went right and some went wrong, clearly, right? Uh, but that's a whole other issue um, that actually you see repeated to some extent. Mm-hmm. Uh, okay, so... The CIA. So, but it's it's it, what I'm. What I'd love some color on is you were. It, it sounds like you were um, overt. One. It sounds like at this period you were more in the walls of the CIA in Virginia. But it's when did you start? When did all this start? And I'm pointing at my computer screen. Central Intelligence Agency. Like when did you start traveling or going to? Afghanistan, Jordan, Denmark, so, right? Yeah, that changed. I mean, that didn't just happen like that, right? Right. So my vault program, we, it's called the vault in my book. Uh-huh. Um, that was the one where, like, I was on duty the night we lost bin Laden in Tora Bora. That was me. I mean, just like a lot of things I had to deal with. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it was it was an interesting experience. So um, immediately after that, uh, George Tennant, who was amazing, felt that the three of us, because we were, like, the original folks on the program, you ne- we needed to be rotated off <laughs> mm-hmm. just because it became a lot. Um, and so because of September 11th, this um, counterterrorism center had sort of like reorganized itself into lots of different mm-hmm. departments within it. And the newest one was the WMD group. And so that's where I just got like placed, I guess, um, after that. Um, and I worked, uh, my target there was a guy named Azbu Musab al-Zarqawi, um, who later became the father of ISIS, but at the time mm-hmm. um, was the person in charge of acquiring like poisons and toxins and WMDs um, for Al-Qaeda. And so it was all his guys that we were following. And then that, so basically immediately after September 11th, the CIA didn't allow a whole lot of travel, to be honest, because they needed people like right. there. Um, and so that's when I also started my training at the farm, 
um, it was more piecemeal. Instead of four months just away from my desk, it would be I would do my SCR or my surveillance detection training and stuff actually in D.C., um, which was really fun. Um, you know, my crash and bang, which is defensive driving, that I went to the farm, but that was only for two weeks, and then I came back. It was just a, obviously very different scene than what it, like, mm-hmm. a typical <laughs> um, time. So I was going back and forth a lot because I had to knock all those things out before I could go overseas. Mm-hmm. They still had rules. <laughs> so, I, I mean, I started going overseas pretty quickly, though. I'd say within, like, two to three months after because um, there were things I could do and then come back and get trained in later. When does the uh, – uh, clearly I know what goes on. I mean, I have an idea what goes on in Quantico. I've seen movies. Uh, <laughs> it's but, so true. <laughs> but, meaning the physical training, does the CIA have the same no. – you um, aren't doing a bunch of – They are super different. Um, yeah, because like, you really are climbing over nets and stuff. And, yeah, yeah, so at Quantico, my training was very tactical. They have yeah. um, Hogan's Alley, which is used by lots of different um, – organization yeah it's the famous yeah yeah um and you spend out i mean so much time in there um you know and you have so much weapons training there you know it's all very physical very tactical um the cia is very much um mind more cerebral yeah um it's much more cerebral it's you know detecting surveillance um, you know, driving, very situational, putting you in different situations. Um, yes, you do have weapons training, but actually not everyone has weapons training because you don't get the weapons training unless you're going to a war zone. Well, not everybody carries either, right, I suppose? No one carries. No it's one not carries, a law yeah. enforcement organization, yeah. so they can't. Um, and so if you're in a war zone, yeah, okay, you're carrying. So it, the training you receive a lot of times depends on, like, where you're going. Okay. So... This is just such rabbit hole stuff for me because oh, I could ask sorry. you so many questions. No, no, it's, no, that's good because I can go on for hours. Um, okay, so I mean, we could talk about everything you did in the CIA. I mean, that's really up to you. Um, I think it's evident. How long would you spend? I guess it was different. You would go on a mission. I mean, we I know that's... We call them TDYs, yeah. tours of duty. That's what And how called. long, would that just vary? Totally depended. So sometimes it was five months. Sometimes it was two weeks. Sometimes it totally depended on what I needed to do, what information I needed, what the point of that TDY mm-hmm. was. Because again, everything now, you know, TDYs, depending on where you're going, they're a year, two years, sometimes six months. It really just depends. But because everything... I mean, I was really there in like the infancy, right, mm-hmm. of of um, the CTC, and so everything was just different. So l- let me ask you this, because I'm a I'm a huge proponent of I have two daughters, for one thing, of you know women, you know, just being progressive, right? Um, what what was the status of women in the agency at the time? I mean, was it Pretty 40%? Awesome. Was it... You know, it's hard to say. I've or been, not percentages, but you felt welcome and... 100%. Yeah. Um, I worked... Uh, my my boss is pretty legendary there, yeah. uh, my big division chief. Um, and he is... I'm very, I speak very highly of him in my mm-hmm. book. I, you know, when it was time to go to a war zone, he picked me to go. I mean, there were other guys that he could right. have picked. He was very much in like, you're doing the work, you're good at this, you're the expert in this, that's where you're going. He totally didn't care. Um, you know, what you and he was one of the really old Russia like guy. I mean, he was just an amazing person. Tenant, for example, who when I was in the vault, I worked with Tenant every single mm-hmm. day. And he was in there every single day. And he treated me 
exactly like he treated everyone else that was in there. So even at the most upper, because I, I believe fully, because that's not what happened at the FBI, I believe fully that treatment and how men and women are treated really starts at the top. Mm, no question. And I think Tenet modeled that, my chief modeled that, and because of that, it set the tone for everyone else to like model that. I mean, when I was in war zones, I was working with SEAL Team 6 and all those lots of guys never had one issue. Mm-hmm. They could not have been nicer, more respectful. I mean, it was, I had a very positive experience there. Very positive. Um, yeah, well, of course, women are smarter, generally speaking. So they, <laughs> you know, I just the CIA it, may have embraced that. I, I read an issue, actually, uh, the head of Mossad, um, which is Israel's, yeah, of course, yeah. Um, wrote an article about why women make better um, human collectors. <laughs> You just said something, SEAL Team 6. I misquoted Birdman's unit. He will kill me when he ever listens. I think he might have been, I can't remember if he's seven, but he, I can't remember. So these guys get real crazy about that. Uh, yeah, so, but it's, it, that is interesting because it hasn't always been that way in certain parts of the military. I mean, we've seen it, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so FBI was definitely not positive. Well, right. And <laughs> maybe, well, and we'll, we'll, we're going to circle back to that if we have time. Sure. Um, as you'll discover, I read as much as I can because I read the two books on Waco and then just watched the miniseries. I don't know if you watched it, but it's a... It's on Waco? A, yeah. Yeah, I watched that. I it mean, okay. I thought it was very, very well done. I, did I, I think it's sad. The books I the books I read, that it was pretty true to the books, but mm-hmm. understand everybody's doing the best they can most of the time. Politics, I tried to tell somebody this other day, Politics and money come into everything. It infects everything. It's really, really hard for it not to. I agree. Especially when you get in bureaucracy in, in agencies, not just not just agencies across all government, right? In companies as well. So, um, but we may have to come back to that. Okay. So, the CIA. Are you? And I'm sure you can. I mean, what can you give us a broad range of when those years were that you were in the CIA? Yeah, sure. Two thousand to two thousand five. Okay. So, let's. Jump to the unless you have anything you want to comment on there. No, I worked um, poisons and toxins, and mm-hmm. Zarkaya was my target. I definitely thwarted a lot of attacks, but the CIA won't let me put those in my book. Unfortunately, well, well yes, and thank you once again. <laughs> yeah, I mean, that's the unknown. Well, you probably know, but the unknown—that's the hard thing. I think. Wait, I don't think you know. A lot of people look at the CIA is almost like military service because they don't see what's being prevented because it's not. You aren't you blowing hear up about a building, our failures, right? Exactly. Usually not our successes, yeah. which is just okay. But so, um, talk about the pivot, or frankly, the move <laughs> to the FBI. And yeah. as we talked about earlier, that's that was uncommon, I suppose. <laughs> it was really um, uncommon. And 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 I think you know what I guess really the thought process and why you even did that. Um. So my thought process behind it, and it, it was hard. Um, because everyone always wants to think that I left because I hated it and, you know, some juicy story, right? Mm-hmm. And um, I actually loved it. Um, they're bridesmaids in my wedding. I still talk to them every day. I was very successful there. Loved my boss. He's super supportive of my book. You know, they're all been very supportive. Um, but what I realized at, like, the ripe old middle 20s was that <laughs> the thing that was never going to change about the agency was that it was, like, constant travel, 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 travel all the time. Mm-hmm. And I think because I had done so much in such this short period of time, which isn't anyone's fault, September 11th fault, um, I got, I don't want to say burned out, but I just realized I can't do this for the rest of my life. This is not um, like 
what I want. Um, I knew that at some point I wanted a family. I, I knew all of that. And I knew that if I was going to continue on this trajectory, um, that would never happen. And um, it was interesting um, because I, I did a book promotion event at the Spy Museum um, in D.C. And um, a person that I did some discussions with, <laughs> I'm trying to talk around it with Terrace, mm-hmm. uh, he showed up randomly in the green room. And I hadn't seen him since we were together doing, um, and, you know, big hug and crying and, you know, cause we like reconnected and he's like, in some ways I wish I left like you did. He's like, because now I have, I have, he's like, I'm, I think he's 48, 49. And he's like, I have no children. I have no, and he's like, I wanted that life, but now it's too late. And I mm-hmm. was like, that's so interesting, you know, to, to talk to him about it. Um, but anyways, so I decided the whole travel component about the agency was never going to change as core to who they are. And that's Okay. Um, but I've always believed if you're going to leave something, you need to leave it for the right reasons. Mm-hmm. And the right reasons were that it was never going to change. And so I got this bright idea in my head. Okay, I can join the FBI. I'll be a special agent there. I'll work counterterrorism. And if I pick the LA office, if you work in one of their 10 largest offices, you never have to move. Um, and I knew LA was always going to be a huge office. It wasn't going to change in terms of population size. Mm-hmm. And so that was my plan. And so that is, that's why I left. I cry the day I left. I'm not a very emotional person. Okay, so, but I, I assume it's not, hey, I checked the box, FBI will take me. They have their own processes, Yeah, of right? course. So I applied. Um, I applied, and they sent, you know, agents to, to the agency to, you know, interview me, talk to me. Um, but then I also had to pass a PG test um, for them. Um, for me, um, the background check was a little different um, because CIA's background check is not just for top secret. It's for something called SCI, which is special compartmented information. That costs a lot more. Um, so they like bought my clearance mm-hmm. from the CIA because most agents don't, they don't need an SCI mm-hmm. clearance. Um, and so it didn't take me as long though as it takes a lot of other people because I had already like gone through that security hoop, I guess. Did anybody say anything along the lines of, you may not like the FBI, it's not... Yes, the same oh, yes. as the CIA. Oh, yes. mm-hmm. Yeah, and 100%. I'm not saying that was the case. I just always want. It's like in my company, if somebody wants to go from yeah from the wealth group, I'm like, well, you understand that's a, they. It's different there. So and they did. Yeah. Um, but I, I think you know, I had made up my mind that you know this wasn't going to change. Well, you made a lifestyle decision too. Yeah. I mean, I lived in D.C. and I had to realize at one point when I was working with congressman, well, this is not going to be much of a life for the next ten or fifteen years. And that's right? okay. And yeah. So I did. It's not that I brushed off what they said. It was just that I knew I couldn't stay at the agency. So, yeah, I mean, people did okay. say that. So you, um, I guess, are now employed by the FBI. And you said it's different. So do you just launch into Quantico? Yes. Or? I, yeah. You report you EOD. Yeah. Um, but your EOD is at Quantico. Like, boom, you start. And how long is that process? 17 weeks. It may be longer now. I don't know. But mine was 17 weeks. And you're weeks. there the whole time? Yeah. And it's it's pretty physically grueling, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, you take like law, you know, forensics cl- like classes, mm-hmm. but those are usually about an hour to a day, and then you know you have they give you time for your own PT, and then you know you have PT, and then um, you know you do Hogan's Alley. That's a little later in the training, you know. And firearms is like you don't start firearms the first day; mm-hmm. <laughs> it's usually like two or three weeks in. And so this is just randomness, but that's a long time to be there. I don't see. I got used to it. Right. But did you, like, 
could you go have a beer with other FBI agents at night in town? Are you are you quarantined there the whole time? Or well, no, because Quantico, there's not an agent. Like, there's not a. Um, yeah, nothing's. There's, I mean, yeah, you can hang out. Yeah. With like people in your class. Yeah. But for me, it wasn't a good experience. So I was by myself pretty much all the time. Okay, so that that would go back to you know being a minor. So were there not many females involved in that process or? I don't, looking back on it, it's hard to know um, what it really was. There were, thir- there were 40 people in my class, uh, 34 were males, six were females. But again, that's not like a deal breaker because I literally spent a lot of time being the only yeah. female at CIA and, and had zero mm-hmm. problems. Um, the females were just as horrible to me as the males in my class, which is fascinating. Okay, but I'm missing something. What, what is, what's driving this? Because it sounds so, like there was some net, a, 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 something was happening. And so, was it because you came from the CIA? Or? Yes. Yeah. So my first day, and I was so naive, um, because we did have two um, FBI agents detailed to the Counterterrorism Center. I had zero issues with them. They were great to work with. Mm. And I just assumed, you know, that everyone was fine. Um, I think what happened, and again, this is purely me thinking the first day you kind of go around this is my name this is how old I am this is Mm -hmm. you know what I used to do I was the youngest in my class by six or seven years um and then you know other people were lawyers maybe police officers those kinds of jobs and then you know I was like I am former CIA and I really just like brushed past it I don't think I said people rolled their eyes um so that I was making it up (laughs) um and my supervisor latched on to that and almost encouraged people to continue to speak that way about me. And so it just became constant all the time. People, you never worked there. You shouldn't be here. You're too feminine to be here. Um, I mean, you name it. They would put me like at Hogan's Alley every single situation. They made me the point person all the time because it's like they wanted to see me fail. Um, So, I mean, I would stay up all night long just to make sure everything was perfect. Like the amount of stress that was placed on me to be so much better than everyone else because of the situations that they put me in, Mm -hmm. in my opinion, it's almost unlawful because you then have a bunch of agents in my class who are unqualified because you never put them in those situations and only put me in those situations. But it's fascinating that you're at the FBI and they're questioning that you'd been in the CIA. Oh, I know. Well, if anybody would know, I think they would know, and, <laughs> considering. Well, the best part was, it's like he has the file right. in his office. Yeah. And again, this is why I learned that like treatment starts at the top. Mm-hmm. He could have, I can't say his real name, but he could have come in and been like, knock it off. She worked there. Get over it. Let's like move on. But he chose not to. And I'm, you know, I started to think like he was very close to retirement. I started to realize maybe he wanted to work at the CIA and was like mad that this young sorority girl worked there and he never got a job there. I don't know. I don't know where that comes from. But um, I think there was animosity there. Someone had done something to him that made him upset. And, you know, it's a cutthroat environment. And I think, I mean, I had to apologize to my interview instructor because I made him uncomfortable in my suit. Um, And so I wrote him a letter apologizing. I mean, things like that, that I should have never had to like experience in my life. Mm -hmm. Um, I mean, and I had never had that problem at the agency and that's what I just couldn't, couldn't understand. Um, you know, I got A's on all my tests. I passed out. Like I I couldn't understand 
why I, I spent pretty much every day by myself <laughs> um, mm-hmm. because the easiest thing in that situation is just to isolate, right? I didn't want to – I, like, was not offensive to anyone, and I couldn't understand, but it just kept coming, 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 coming. So you persevered and made it out. Yes. And so that led you into, I guess, the quote-unquote the field in yes. Los Angeles. Mm-hmm. And then how long were you in the FBI? So it was only FBI, um, counting everything, two years. Um, Unfortunately, the harassment turned sexual in my office, (laughs) and it just got worse. Um, So, well, sorry to hear that. It's okay. But we live in a fallen world. So you you did go to serve. Yes. And in what what capacity was that? So I was a special agent, um, and then... So I was, I think this also compounded um, part of the problem. You find out what field office you're sent to in like, I think it was week six or seven at the academy. Mm -hmm. Um, And so I was assigned to the LA office, but I was assigned to a smaller office called a resident agency. So like here in Dallas, we probably have resident agencies too. And so I was assigned to one called Santa Ana or Orange County, which is actually where I'm from. Mm -hmm. Um, And that really pissed off a lot of the people in my class because new agents are not sent to resident agencies. Yeah, and you got your hometown on top of that, right? Um, Again, didn't make a big deal about it. My instructor was like, don't make a big deal about this. I can't believe you're going to a resident agency. It turned out that they wanted me to go there because they were working a special case. Um, It Mm -hmm. was a Chinese counterintelligence case. And I was shocked I wasn't doing counterterrorism, but they, I, I guess they needed my SCI clearance mm-hmm. to work that case. Um, but when you're a new agent, especially in a field office, you have to work with every squad that's on there. So I was on the counterintelligence squad, um, but you have to, like, check off a bunch of things in your first year. And so I did, you know, bank robberies, gangs, um, pornography, you know, all those kinds of things, too, but then was, like, detailed to that Chinese counterintelligence squad. So that you, you that lasted... Two years, not that part, but the entire um, the entire uh, employment by the FBI. So obviously, it came to an end. It one was did you begin to think your way out of it, or did it have an abrupt ending? And then at that point, we did you think of okay, what's next? Am I going to no. join the Air Force, or were you, or were you? Did you think this is? I've it's been a good run in. Right. So I I stayed at the academy because I thought, you know what, there's an end to this, right? Mm -hmm. Like I'll get assigned to an office. And so I did the office and um, I think it was pretty abrupt. Um, I went, uh, it's all because of my dad. Uh, I went out to dinner after work uh, one Mm -hmm. night with my dad and I was like, God, dad, like you will never believe what my SSA or your supervisory special agent said to me today, oh, it's so annoying. And I told him it's it's inappropriate, so I won't mm-hmm. repeat it here. Um, and my dad, he's this very calm psychologist, you know, but like 6'3", big guy, mm-hmm. lost his mind when I told him, what, like lost his mind. And my dad made me realize, like, this is abusive and this is not okay. Yeah, and you may not be able to see it as much because you're <laughs> living it, right? Yeah, and he's like, this, this is totally unacceptable. And he's never freaked out ever like that before. And so it was at that moment that I realized I'm done. I'm done. This is not okay. And so I quit the next day. I resigned. Um, And I thought, you know what? I think it was like July, August, maybe. Mm -hmm. I don't remember. I was like, well, now's a good time as any to be a teacher. (laughs) And I realized, you know, I've got a support system because my family was there. um, And I applied Like, I mean, within two days, I'm just, obviously, I think you get this. I'm not someone who sits around, like, like, let's get it done. So two days later, I found myself meeting with, like, the dean of the School of Education (laughs) College, and 
And where was that? It's called Chapman University. Oh, sure. Yeah. My daughter looked at that. So my dad's Beautiful campus. I've been a professor there yeah. for like 45 years. Oh, wow. Yeah. Yeah. And so that that's where I got my her, master's. She went and looked at Chapman and uh, ends up at University of Denver. Where's she going? Oh. But uh, It's an awesome school. I love it. So, okay. <laughs> Let me, let's pivot back to the service, and then we're going to move on to the rest of your life. <laughs> what did, were you ever in... I mean, was your life ever in danger, like imminent danger? Oh, yeah. 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 I know you, we can't get into complete <laughs> details. But, Sorry. But no, but it was. Okay. I mean, you just wonder, because I'm sure, I bet there's plenty of people that go through the entire CIA experience, and, are, and it's can be fairly mundane, right? Definitely. Yeah. But again, it depends on where you're where serving you yeah. and, you know, what you're doing and, um, Yeah. And and so I, we're gonna have we're gonna be tied on time ultimately, but because I want to learn more about your life today, we're clearly gonna get into your book and where people can engage you today. But we just have to talk about, I mean, with your background, which you did on my panel, you know, the current state of affairs is unique. I mean, it it to me, and I was a huge study uh, of the '60s as well, which part of led in that Vietnam. Um, you look back on videos, it's just there's similarities in a lot of ways. I mean, there's this, uh, almost a countercultural movement. Um, there's some parts of it that are dangerous, I think. Some of it is a healthy testing of current norms. Um, like, do, does this, what, does anything keep you up at night right now in, so, in the environment we're in? I mean, the coronavirus mm-hmm. is one thing. We've never locked down Americans, as far as I'm aware, per se. Yeah, no, I don't um, think so. And then we have you know the peaceful protests and the unpeaceful protests. Um, and what what does anything worry you that you can speak of right now? So I have three. I've always I've always had these three. They've actually not changed all that much. Strangely, uh-huh. um, uh, the first one is um, Chinese mm-hmm. um, Chinese counterintelligence. I know it's been politicized recently, but you know you have to remember I've been working it since. Before it was cool, I guess. Right. I don't know. Before, <laughs> um, before Trump made it the Yeah, thing. you know, it was. I've just been working it at the FBI, right? And I worked a case from start to finish. And, um, you know, the case has been, was in the news at the time. And, you know, it's really disturbing the inroads that they've made. And we should care um, about what they're stealing. I don't necessarily know that they're stealing it to use it on us, but they're costing us a lot of money um, and a lot of years in R&D. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, in terms of the things that they're stealing. And I think it's hard. I think initially it was hard for us to care because it doesn't go boom, right? We have this, we had this thing in the CIA, no one cares unless it goes boom. And sure. I think, you know, with the, with the FBI and working Chinese counterintelligence, it's so under the table, right? It's not sexy and, and all of that, but it is a tremendous problem. I mean, they, when I was, when I worked the case, they were stealing our radar cloaking technology for submarines and airplanes and those kinds of things. And I don't know that they're stealing to use it on us, but they don't have the creative mindset that we do because it's group think. Mm-hmm. It's not individual think. And so they don't have that ability. And that's really what they want so badly is our trade secrets mm-hmm. and our economic secrets. Um, my next issue that I've always like harped on, but no one cares, is our failed states. And the reason is, is because I think if we cared more about failed states, we'd have less terrorism. Um, Al-Qaeda was born at, in Afghanistan, which at the time was a failed state. Mm-hmm. ISIS was born in Iraq, which at the time was a failed state. Al-Shabaab um, was born in, well, a couple different places, but Somalia started when it was a failed state. 
Um, and, you know, failed states re- don't meet the needs of its people, right? That's what a failed state is. And I will never forget, um, and I'll use quotes, talking to a terrorist and asking him why he became one. And he said, you know, I don't care about the ideology. He's like, Al-Qaeda gave me what I needed. I needed food. I needed clothing. I needed shelter. I needed a vaccine. And I needed education. And they gave me that. And if we're not giving people that, (laughs) they're going to turn elsewhere to get it. And it's very simple. But um, again, I don't think it's Well, right. It's like the whole (laughs) – if you look at Mogadishu or whatever, right? I mean, warlords – they be, that happens because there is no as a power police vacuum. There. Yeah, so somebody's yes. going to fill the. I always say that. Let's be careful around America because someone's going to fill the. Somebody's going to fill the void. It <laughs> may not be who you like. Okay, and so that's I think my, two. So my third one, and you know, this frustrates people. I know is um, you know domestic terrorism. Um, I think um, we don't talk about it enough, and a lot of Americans think that terrorism comes from. I'll use quotes again over there. Um, but that's actually like not always the mm-hmm. case. Um, and, you know, we have a whole generation. I know I grew up during Oklahoma City. I remember it vividly. But we have a whole group of people that don't remember any of that um, and don't think that that's an issue. Um, and we do have, I think, a huge problem here with it. Well, so, yeah, it's interesting because I was in, in working for Sam Johnson when Oklahoma City happened. We had to evacuate. I was working in his congressional district office. We had to evacuate our building, yeah. and but it was interesting because nine eleven came along, and everybody just kind of forgot about it, right? Mm-hmm. It, but there also became—I mean, the militias were a real thing, and absolutely. But then there became this whole Ruby Ridge. Was it? Was it? Was oh, that right or wrong? That had its whole set of issues. Right? I get it. Yeah. Did, was Waco right or wrong? Um, but yes, that has definitely been. Now I don't. What I don't know enough because I haven't studied is you know where Antifa is and how real is it and all that. Um, Maybe we should just avoid that for now. We can come back to it. But, um, well, you know, I think our biggest problem, at least here in the U.S., and I'm, I, you know, I'm not here to talk about Antifa and right. all of that, but I do think a big problem we have, and a lot of people disagree with me, is we do not have a federal statute to arrest someone, anyone. I don't care who they are, what organization, Antifa, whatever, on a domestic terrorism charge. That's weird. But we can arrest someone on an international terrorism charge. I don't understand why we don't have a domestic terrorism charge because it almost solidifies it. So here. what is that? It's a crime. It's, then it's just a common crime. So usually we arrest them. You know, if someone's arrested on you know domestic terrorism. Like if you look at Dylan Roof, right? The um, yeah, yeah. Or Charlottesville. A lot of times we arrest them on hate crimes. There were right. So like there that. is no domestic terrorism. Law. So Ted Krasinski was just prosecuted under blowing people up. I don't remember what he right. was prosecuted under, but he couldn't have been because there's no statute. Doesn't exist. And I think that would be a, a, that's a, almost a message to people. Like we are recognizing that this is a problem. Yeah. We are creating a law that we can prosecute people under because I don't think Ted Kaczynski was actually committing hate crimes. He was blowing people up that he had like both. Yeah, it's like, all uh, it's all ideolo- right. ideology. Yeah, yeah, I mean Dylan, if you can make the case that that's yeah. definitely a hate crime, but um, some of these others, I just don't think that you can. So. I, Man, fascinating time. So, the 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 commentary on China is interesting, right? I mean, I, I'm I'm very close to the head of one of the largest utility companies, and he spoke on my panel. As a matter of fact, not the one you're on. I mean, he said it to a room full of people, so I can say it. <laughs> they th- this so they have. Let's just talk about regular metal beams that are involved in our infrastructure. I don't know how this happens, but he's like, we quit buying everything from China. He was, and he said, it is all infected. He's like, we're talking about just 
metal beams that we'll have. I don't know how they do this. They're they're infusing it with either bugs or because they're you know transmission lines. He just literally it's cost some ton of money, but he's like, we just had everything. Like he said, his one of his analysts like, look, let me show you. Like I'm going to bring you what is coming over from China on our equipment. I think the problem though is that. Like, I'm glad people are awakening to it now. Do you know what I mean? Or considering it a problem. But in my opinion, it's been a problem since at least 2005. And we're just now. You know, I'm disturbed by the inroads they could have made in the last, what, like 15 years that we haven't really, like, talked about it. Well, Alan would say there's somebody working, a whole team in a room working round the clock from people that are constantly attacking our power grid in this state. Which it makes sense, like, cause, like mm-hmm. if you can take power down for an extended period of time, you have a problem. You know all this, right? I mean, and and it it keeps him up at night. I um, think, yeah, the Russians and Chinese are different in their like approaches. To uh, Russians are looking to disrupt, right? Yeah. Chinese are looking to steal. Kind yeah. Of, yeah. So I know it's funny because it's like all coming back now. Now Russia's the thing, and China's the thing, and um, okay, so let's see here. Uh, The, the, you said something about terrorism. So you think at the end of the day, you know, what, did, and like forget China because that's a bigger, that's almost government versus government. You know, the, the terrorists, the al-Qaeda, is it all driven by the same thing at the, to some extent? What do you mean? Like, I mean, mean I like think, ideological? Yeah, I mean, some of it's the hate of America. Some of it's. I guess there's differences. There's who there's those who lead it and those who they recruit. Totally, right? I agree. And those are very different people, right? Because that person that's being recruited is just they have a need in their life that needs to be filled. Totally so you talk agree. to your necessity, right? Totally agree. Um, I think with the upper echelons, like you know Zawahiri, UBL, you know all yeah. of them, um, I do think that's more ideological. There's a great book, The Looming Tower. Um, by Lawrence Wright, and it talks about, I mean, it's very long, but I think it's really good. And it talks about basically the founder of Al-Qaeda is um, a guy named Al-Qaeda, and he um, came to the U.S. in 1948. That's how far back it goes. Mm -hmm. And decided that he had a hatred of the West. And that's where it came from. And bin Laden studied his books. And that's where he got, you know, his ideological stuff from i mean the bin laden family is one of the richest families in the right. middle east and they are actually not ideological um sort of pariahs like bin right. laden is and so um that book is really really good at least in its first three chapters of sort of explaining where the hatred came from and it's mm-hmm. a hatred of of our government a hatred of our openness um a hatred he's almost it's interesting because al Qatab in his like ramblings of he visited the U.S. and that's where he decided he didn't like us. But you know, he describes women in you know uh, mid-length skirts as pornographic. I mean, it's just very much <laughs> not um, rational, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but that's where a lot of these things start, right? And and so people started studying his readings, and that's Bin Laden really latched onto his teachings, mm-hmm. um, and that's where that came from. So, and I, I think we both have to be careful on this question. But I wonder often, and you may may or may not want to comment. Um, I mean, so we took out Saddam, obviously. I mean, clearly there was a mission to do that. Yes. However you want to word it. Um, do we, do, I just often worry that it's, as opposed to a stabilizing um, event, that was a destabilizing event. I'll totally and, answer and, and that question. My reading, 
It's all over my book. Would be that Osama and Saddam, I don't believe from, you would know, shoot, you're in the CIA. I mean, he was not supporting bin Laden to blow up the Twin Towers. They did not, ideologically, they didn't like each other. Or So did we create a worse situation by trying to do good? So I'm all over that in my book. Okay, um, I can't wait. My chart is the chart that was used by Colin Powell mm-hmm. uh, to falsely make a connection um, between um, Saddam Hussein and terrorism. And all my sources went underground as a result mm-hmm. of it, and then they went and blew up a train in Madrid. It was really bad. Um, and it's interesting because Colin Powell has a book out, and in the book he apologizes and like takes ownership of mm-hmm. misusing that chart, which is kind of cool in a weird right, way. Yeah. Um, but uh, no, our, we 100%, I remember talking with my colleagues, this one guy in particular, we're like, this is going to destabilize the region. Zarqawi uh, is going to move in there. He's going to create another terrorist group because Zarqawi and Bin Laden hated each other. This will be a new haven for him. This will be great. He's going to start up a terrorist organization. And it's controversial because, look, um, Saddam Hussein did bad things to people. That's no question. But um, dictators typically do not get along with terrorists because it undermines their authority. Right, yeah. <laughs> I mean, that's pretty pretty normal. And we had no evidence to suggest that he was there, which is why when our chart got used, we were shocked. And you can Google it. It's online now. Um, but he it created such a power vacuum that we shouldn't be surprised that al-Qaeda in Iraq started. And everyone that was there on the ground was saying that this is what was going to happen. We all said that this is what was going to happen, but he was taken out. Yeah, we, we this is such a dangerous stuff to talk about. You know, cause well, the but whole, I'm not coming at it from a political no, no, standpoint. You know, but like for the me, whole WMD deal, right? I mean... I'll be honest, I voted for Bush. Like, I, well, yeah, he's a great man. I mean, absolutely. He's in our backyard. And I talk in my book about how much respect I have for him. Mm-hmm. Um, I thought he was actually an excellent president. Um, he really was, particularly during 9-11 and Operation Enduring Freedom. I supported that. And I will say this, what was so great about him as a president and um, tenant as our CIA director is we were allowed to disagree. Mm-hmm. We were allowed to say, you know, we know you want to get Hussein, but like this is where we're coming from and why we're telling you that this is not a good idea. And it was always respected. Mm-hmm. And you have to respect that about a leader, in my opinion. Mm-hmm. Well, look, you all, I should say, as well as the president, did an incredible job of disrupting the terrorists. I mean, clearly they did, right? I mean, I something so. worked. I agree. Because we haven't had buildings blown up, right? I, agree. I mean, and don't think people don't want to. I mean, maybe they're focused elsewhere, but I've always said that the disruption was so much that. It kept Americans safe. I think so. Right. Um, I mean, war is a whole nother thing because of that's course. that's bigger than those decisions are so, so large. Um, and I think generally speaking, people are tempting to do the right thing. I mean, I think. I it, do too. It, I mean, I think Rumsfeld, he he had an agenda that he believed was right. Oh, um, I agree. I met right. all of them when yeah, I was. Yeah, I mean, you knew these people when right? I was there, so, and I don't think anyone. I do think everyone was coming from a good place. All right. So, okay. So let's take a massive leap now. <laughs> um, you got out of the FBI along that path, because we're definitely running out of time. Of uh, along that path, Sorry. you met your husband. Yes. Uh, and you were allowed to tell him what you did. So you guys started dating out of the FBI. Mm-hmm. I was getting my master's while I was dating him. You were getting, you were getting your master's. He was in residency. Residency. So he was already out of dental school. 
Well, I guess he was I met in him the residency his last part of year of dental school, and then he moved into. His then residency. he was at USC, UCLA, UCLA. And where did you guys meet? We met at a friend's party. Okay. <laughs> really, not very exciting. <laughs> and so he says, "What do you do for a living?" And you said, "I'm getting my master's." Or somebody mm-hmm. said, "What did you do for a mm-hmm. living?" Or did you just go ahead and get that out there? No, no, no. He he asked me what I was like doing, and I, I said, "I'm getting my master's." Because at the time, I mean, that's what I was doing, so I didn't. When I told him what I was doing, and, and this is why I love my husband, like it's not that he doesn't care. He's just not a politics, world affairs kind yeah. of guy. We well, stirs in people's mouths all day. Exa- <laughs> he is obsessed with biology, yeah. and I love that about him, and it's okay. We're just. <laughs> Did he ever ask you, are you still in and you aren't telling me? No, I think one time, and I should not say Because everybody thinks that, I right? should not say this, but um, I think. Kevin's thinking that right now. <laughs> one time, he and I, this is like really early on into our relationship. We had a little disagreement, as couples do. And he's like, you must still be in the CIA because you are interrogating me right yeah. now. <laughs> yeah, my phone bugged. Uh, so, uh, but are you allowed, I mean, if you're overt, first of all, you probably wouldn't up getting married anyway, but I mean, you can tell your spouse, I mean, your spouse would always know that you're in the agency. Clearly, it would know right? I was in, but like if I, if my spouse didn't work there, like he wouldn't have known, you know, when I was going overseas right. someplace. I mean, you couldn't divulge details. Yeah. Right. And he wouldn't be able to come with me. So let's, um, pivot to your current work. You know, you're raising kids, which is work. Um. So you you guys obviously ultimately came to Dallas. I'll just fast forward because of an, an opportunity for yeah. your husband in his dental practice, I suppose. Uh, and now it's out there. My kids go to that practice, just not um, Tracy's husband in particular. So, uh, okay, what what you, did you always, did you come back straight into teaching? So you've taught since you've been out. Yeah, Has I've that been your main vocation? 14 years. Okay, mm-hmm. since you've been out. Um, taught some people I know. They love your class. <laughs> So you're still teaching, right? Mm-hmm. Are you? So I, now I teach um, criminal justice and women in policing at TCU. I'm an adjunct mm-hmm. there. Really excited about that. Um, and then I teach a course on terrorism in the Middle East at um, Ursuline Academy. Okay. Just one Great class. Great school. Yeah, I'm really excited. I had some nieces that went there. Oh. Um, boy, you can inspire some young women to one I know in particular you are, have already. So that, that's a great, actually, pivot, because you're getting, what age kids are these? Um, well, so at TCU, there are a variety of different, like right. sophomores, juniors, um, and then at um, Ursuline, they're mostly seniors. Okay, that, I was actually more talking about Ursuline. The reason I ask is, I, I love this question. I, I, I picked this age over 18, because really things become formative 18. What would you tell your 16-year-old self? So that's an interesting question. Um, like I said, I was bullied. Right. The amount of bullying that I faced was astronomical. Mm-hmm. Um, I think to have more confidence in yourself. That's what I would have told my 16-year-old self is to have more confidence because I spent a lot of my life hating myself and not mm-hmm. being very confident. And so I think at 16, I probably would have told myself to have more confidence. Yeah, and it's it's what mine is not dissimilar. It's Mine's more is along the lines of, just don't worry about what everybody thinks, right? Mm-hmm. But but I have this one um, podcast called Ghost World, which is just me talking. It's right from a high school reunion. That's just a difficult time though, because peer pressure and your undeveloped mind, and right. Um, and I think it's worse now, by the way, only in the sense of social media and right. I mean, that's a whole other problem. So more confidence, mm-hmm. uh, and that's awesome because you get to speak into these kids at Ursuline, you know. Uh, okay, so. Do you do anything daily, 
And everybody, some people don't. I'm, I'm a habit guy because it keeps me sane. Do you think daily or have habits or routines that, that are just part of your process? Mm-hmm. That, that whatever that is. I'm just curious. Because what I'm trying to do is give people tools, of little tools of things you do that just... Working you know, out. Yeah. Big thing for me. Is, and is that it. morning or is it whenever you can do it? I mean, ideally, I'd like it to be morning. Yeah. But I think, you know, with a little one, and mm-hmm. sometimes it can be at different times that are mm-hmm. not the morning. And so you, you're bound to read quite a bit. I don't. But you have to read for... I mean, you're reading... I, most of my reading is... is Unfortunately, school reading because I don't yeah. have time. And so right now, do you try to avoid watching the news in general? Um, unfortunately, and I shouldn't. Well, actually, it's interesting. I just did an interview um, yesterday with BBC and then the day before that with Al Jazeera. Um, and so I've started watching those news sources mm-hmm. more um, because it's giving me a more holistic view of everything that's going on in the world our, sometimes I think our news is just like one thing and one thing only. And there's obviously more things going mm-hmm. on in the world. And so I've actually found that those two networks have presented everything. So I've watched less news than I normally do, which is unfortunate to say because I love mm-hmm. um, the news. But um, it's just it's just too singular um, right now. And yeah. I can't do that. So then I'm gonna have to, I have to pivot back to something because you know, mental health, you've seen a lot, right? Being FBI, CIA, counterterrorism, being bullied, sexual harassment. Um, what are you? Do you do anything either daily or to 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 keep your mind right? Working out. <laughs> yeah. So that's part of it. So that's your therapy. Yeah. Okay. Um, I'm just curious because you know, I, I my big thing is I just get quiet in the morning. I have to get up earlier. And just do a little bit of meditation and just, you know, stop the monkey. Working out has always been my therapy. I think, you know, from being at the FBI when I was like tortured there, Mm -hmm. I would just go on crazy long runs, you know, and just by myself with no one else. Okay. Well, I'm getting you to the CrossFit gym for sure. (laughs) Uh, It's been a big thing for me too in my life in red wine. I don't really drink. I know. I do. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) um, Okay. So that's awesome. So, I'm a health nut. <laughs> we could just go on forever. Uh, I mean, really, we could. I'm probably going to have to have a part two on this because I'd probably like to pull you more into, you know, state of affairs to some extent. Sure. And um, Okay, so let's do the fast five. Okay. This, I told you about this. It's my, it's my version of a lightning round. I just like to – it can be a sentence or a word. Sure. And, and some of these mean a lot. And so, listeners, as you guys know, it's faith, family, friends, fitness, and finances, things that I believe are important and everybody's life in some form or fashion, right? The weight people puts on those is up to them. Um, but even somebody that doesn't work out, you know what they think is I should work out. Right? <laughs> or if you don't have your checkbook balance, they're like, I should be better at that. Yeah. So we're always trying to improve those. And that's the nature of the show. Uh, okay, so let's go. Okay. Faith. Multifaceted. Family. My stable place. Friends. Fun. Fitness. My mental strength. Finances. Stability. Stability. Yeah, it's good. So I do want to ask one question before we get into where we can find you now is, because this is important to me, what what do you, you're trying to, 
what are the, do you have boys, girls? I don't want to give up too much information, but you speak into your kid's life uh-huh. from a different perspective. What do you tell them? My students? No, no, your children. My daughter. So um, my story is a little different, um, mm-hmm. and I do talk about this at the very end of my book. Um, mm-hmm. I am not able to have children. Um, and so my daughter, she's biologically mine, so she mm-hmm. looks just like me. Um, but she was carried very via surrogate, and yeah. our surrogate stopped talking to us <laughs> um, when she was five, six months pregnant. Um, and so it's one of those things like God never gives you more than you like can't handle. But that was definitely tested during yeah. that time. <laughs> I mean, I remember all this. Uh, yeah. So like we weren't allowed to be there when she was born. All of those things. And so I, the thing I always tell her, because this is what I always told myself, <laughs> when, mm-hmm. you know, when her during her journey was be brave, be brave, be brave, be brave. And that's like always my message to her. Um, and that's, I guess her, she calls it her motto, but it's supposed to be motto, but she doesn't say it right. <laughs> okay, this is awesome because, and you'll hear this on, if you ever hear me speak. So when starting about first, gra- first grade, when I would take my kids to uh, the elementary, which started with Charlotte when she, that would be six or seven or so. Yes. When they got out of the car, I would say, be bold and brave. <laughs> and I say that to them, and she's going to college. Like when I leave her, when I leave Denver, what am I going to tell her? Be, be brave. bold and brave. Be yep. bold and brave. That's awesome. So, um, Kevin, we're getting close here, but I have the book in front of me. Yes. The Unexpected Spy. I love the cover, which is basically, is that you, the back? Is that no, your back? No, it a model looks like back? me, but it's not me. Well, it's, it's okay. Uh, so so the, the places to find, I mean, really just to find you is at tracywalder.com. Yes, That's or you easy. can follow me on um, at Tracy underscore Walder. On Twitter or um, Instagram is The Unexpected Spy. And so before we hop, Kevin, so they can buy the book. Anywhere, Amazon, Amazon Barnes & Noble, Target, your local bookstore. Um, and then... Um, and it's um, available via audiobook. Okay. Um, and well. then are you available for speaking engagements, I suppose, yes. interviews? Feel free uh, to just contact me through my website. It's usually yes, that's where I found you. The best way. Uh, I do have a speaker's agent, but it's always easier to contact. Okay, so me on that. that note, is the book, and you may not be able to speak about this. Has this been optioned? Yes. And for TV series. Yes. And is that? Do we know what what stream yet? Or so that's a hard question to answer. Not because I can't, but because the world is so crazy right, right now. Right. Yeah. Um, I don't have too many updates on it. Okay, no, that's okay. And, and sorry to keep going here, Kevin, but I, I want to know, because I, I want to give you this avenue, is there something that you care about from a, I know you do, but like a nonprofit or anything yeah. that you're involved in that you'd like my listeners to know about? So Because it's an opportunity um, to tell them, you know, so drive traffic on, that way. Um, the board of directors for an organization called Girl Security, and it's a nonpartisan, um, not-for-profit um, organization that brings national security curriculum to girls in high school across the entire U.S. Um, obviously, before COVID, they did really great things with this group. It's um, a bunch of retired um, generals who are females. It, they're called the Dames of War Games. Mm-hmm. Um, and they set up war games for girls to do. So they're, mm-hmm. like, solving, you know, North Korea's nuclear problem in these, like, really hands-on ways. And they pair them up with mentors, um, you know, in the military and Homeland Security, all different organizations. So, And that's um, girl security. Girl security. hmm all right, let's. Uh, it's been awesome. In one hour and fifteen minutes, we <laughs> just couldn't keep it an hour. <laughs> Listeners, thank you, thank you, Tracy, so much for being on. And what I want to say is, God bless you, and God bless you in all your endeavors, and thank you for your service. Thank you.